I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. I've always been really interested in architecture and have studied the history of architecture along with the history of art since my undergraduate days. Obviously, I love museum architecture and I love how architecture can make works of art look better and vice versa. So really glad to be able to add to the podcast another conversation with a really interesting architect today, Jerry Garcia. We will get there in just a second. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O ASPEN.com and mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Jerry Garcia is a principal at Olson Kundig since 2006. Throughout his tenure in Seattle, he has been an active instigator in the dialogue between architecture, art, and the community at large. Working across a broad range of project types and scales, from 200 square foot cabins on wheels to high rises around the world. Jerry's work has received numerous design awards and appeared in publications such as Architecture, Architectural Record, and Art and Auction. For Jerry, he says, good architecture rewards inspection. The deeper you look, the more you see. That's one of my favorite expressions, actually. So in this conversation, he and I discuss work being fun, the reach out, professional rebellion, not wanting to be complacent, being better, what we carry, getting to pick everyone around you, hiring people who scare you, 
knowing what to do, bird watching, knowing where to look, art that is barely art, not being complacent, and living a totally different life. Hey, Jerry, good afternoon. How's your day going so far? Oh, it's good. Yeah, just um, working on fun stuff. So uh, it's a good day. I love the idea of work being fun. And I think that um, sometimes I forget about that. And I think sometimes other people forget about it. And yesterday I did my first capoeira lesson and... Yep. <laughs> it's something I've always wanted try- to do. I'm trying to visualize that <laughs> right now. <laughs> me doing cart- so good. Me doing cartwheels. I was doing yeah, yeah. a ton of cartwheels. Yeah. So and the way that you start the Capoeira lesson is is with a song and a commitment to play. And mm-hmm. this idea of Capoeira as as a sense of play. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is is this idea of of not taking it too seriously, right? Like mm-hmm. the most serious thing particularly with Capoeira, right? It's self-protection. So how do you do something in which the stakes are super high, including work, and make it playful and or have fun doing it? Yeah, I, um, I learned a big lesson um, when I was in my mid-20s. Um, I'd started a co-op of artists and architects here in Seattle, and um, we'd gotten some momentum going, and then I decided to just leave, <laughs> leave the momentum and go to... Um, and work with this group of artists, architects, poets, and industrial designers that had um, founded their own city on the Chilean coast. Um, and they all, most of them also taught at the Catholic University of Chile. And um, and uh, basically it was a founding of between a, a poet, a sculptor, and an architect. And the purpose was try to, give, to try to give form to poetry. And again, it's like a heady thing, you know, and they're super serious people. Very, I mean, they just live it 24 hours a day. But what was so beautiful was that um, play was integral to their process and their practice. That play, uh, they would create these elaborate games and and, um, with costumes and rituals. And it would just be um, uh, kind of hilarious to to kind of see these uh, people um, letting loose and letting go um, and kind of in search of other things. And they really felt that it was important for the creative process. And um, so I learned that quickly from them that you can kind of be completely serious about and um, committed to your practice, but that um, it's almost like, because I, I do yoga. So it's almost like uh, that you, that you got to stretch, you got to stretch to feel good and to be able to think um, um in a very kind of concise way. So good, right? And yeah. people don't stretch. My boyfriend's <laughs> like, I, why don't I stretch every day? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. why why don't we do all sorts of things that we know are good for us and in theory are are not hard, right? Yeah. And, and, but somehow... And- and my girlfriend Susan yeah, would probably say, them. Jerry, you don't stretch every day. <laughs> but I, I do stretch. <laughs> I do stretch. <laughs> Uh, what are some things that you do do every day? You know what I do every day is um, I kind of uh, leave myself room um, in terms of when I begin the day. You know, typically, you know, you're, there's just so much going on in the world, right? And so many meetings and clients and what have you. But um, I do make a point of, uh, besides sending a quick email that I have to, you know, keep moving, um, starting by just reaching out and connecting with people. So um, my my people, you know, my community, you know, mm-hmm. my my inspirations around the you know around the world, um, those are vital to my ability to function. And so I, I'm pretty methodical about really having that be part of the day, daily ritual is to kind of reach out to my um, um, my uh, my touchstones around the world. So I'm very mm-hmm. good about it, very good about it, and um, and it makes me feel um, empowered. You know, because inevitably there's going to be one or two exchanges, whether it's in the exchange or whether it's even just thinking about that person that helps me somehow within my day. I love that. That's so interesting. And is each one personalized? 
Oh yeah, no, no. Or oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Because again, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it's a free flow thing, right? It's just like depending on the day, depending on what's happening, depending on what you see or think about or you read about, and you let that kind of just go. Because um, I know there's this kind of this is thought perhaps that you know that uh, we as we as uh, people have a hard time concentrating now. You know, because we're always multitasking, because we're surfing, because we're doing all these things, and we're jumping um, from one image to the other, or one other, and we, you know, we don't read books like we used. To. Perhaps we don't read books like we used to. But I actually think that there's a different way. I actually think that um, I think one can surf, if you will. One can kind of do research. One can do research on the internet or with books around you, or, or even talking to people in a way that maybe seems scattered, but collectively is, is rather deep thought. You know, and so I, um, when I go on these kind of uh, these rabbit holes, I just feel like there is a logic to it, and at the end, it kind of it totally makes sense to me, and it's it's useful to me. So, um, yeah, it's it's an important. I was I was just I was just thinking about that because we're even like um, we have this ritual in the office where we uh, we review um, on every Thursday afternoon. Uh, we come together as a group. Um, it's been you know. Uh, via teams or you know online for the last year and a half but we're starting to gather again and um and we just review a project someone shares a project and we just collectively try to try to help and make it better and inevitably even the way that those have been evolving over the years uh has been really dynamic in terms of you know uh real-time surfing or referencing or people posting uh and it's it's really it's a different way of communicating now but i, I think that as a collect you know as a whole as a body as a body of thought it's it's pretty potent if you know anything about me you know i'm a super ritualistic person and mm -hmm. those have become more defined over time and some I don't even really think about it as rituals anymore. I just kind of do them. And yeah. one of them is I do check in with, you know, the three people I love the most in the world every morning. It's just a standard text, kind of like, right. hey, I'm thinking of you. You know, I see you. I, I love you. Mm -hmm. And they usually write back something kind of similar. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're talking about is similar, but but different. Right. Because it's maybe a little more, I don't want to say productive because I don't feel like what I do is not productive. Right. Right. <laughs> but I mean, productive in terms of like, it's almost like mine is maybe more of a punctuation and yours is more of like an ellipses or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Perhaps, you know, it, it is, it is work centric, maybe perhaps a little bit more work centric, but I think the one thing you mm -hmm. and I, I know we, when we've spoken in the past that um, we do share a, a common thread. And I think uh, one of those luxuries in life into which, you know, our, our professional practice and our personal life are so deeply intertwined. Um, so I think that, um, that I'm, that's really what I'm kind of, kind of uh, tapping into with um, some of these outreaches. And, you know, yeah, we, have a big, great. we have a, you know, we have a firm, you know, like a firm of 200 people um, here in Seattle. And, uh, and I think it's important to keep bringing things at least, you know, in my role and other people's role in the office, to to keep bringing things in um, from outside, to kind of kind of uh, share other thoughts, share other ways of doing things, share other perspectives um, that perhaps can help influence our practice and keep it developing and um, and keep challenging and questioning it. So that's another way too that I really like to. Uh, kind of take what I take those mornings uh, and kind of use uh, some of that information and some of that, um, some of that, some of the thought and, um, and bring it to the teams, bring it to the office. And um, so I think it's important for just at least my role in the, like in our practice. Yeah. So will you tell your, what I'm calling now origin story with architecture? Funny because uh, we just we just you uh, your way there? we just did a we just did a our, our founding um, the founding um, the founding principal here at Olson Kundig Jim Olson just gave a presentation to the office yesterday that was called Origin Story that was uh, mm. the origin story of the crit the the very format which I was uh, mentioning and, and I'm the principal who kind of stewards the crit and I think it's really it's a really important. Um, tool for us as an office to kind of um, steer conversation 
and to kind of introduce elements or aspects of the practice that may be lacking. Um, but you know, the, you know, my thing is, it's super simple. It's just like, I've always really wanted to be an architect. Um, and the path was pretty clear. My aunt, um, in Houston, she lived, she lived really close to the Manil collection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I remember that the one of the best museums in the world. Yeah. And, and more important for me at that point in my life was that arcade that surrounds it. it's a really fun arcade to just ride your bike around. And yes. so I first recognized it as a good place to ride my bike. And then I started noticing what was inside, that there was stuff inside. Again, I, I don't come from a background where, you know, I, I'm taught about art or, you know, um, architecture or anything like that growing up. So, it's, uh, um, so then I, I noticed that. And so then I noticed that it's free too. So then I, um, so one day I go and I walk inside the Manel collection and that from that point on my life changed like completely. So, so yeah, so that's what introduced, that's where I started to learn about contemporary art. That's where I really started to learn more about architecture. Um, but it was always about architecture. So then I, um, you know, I did, this, I did school, went to school in Texas, and then I moved up here to Seattle. And I just moved up to Seattle at a really exciting time. Um, it was about youth. It was about discovery and, um, you know, sub-pop records and some of the musicians that are part of that were some of my first clients. And, you know, my first act, I, I was mentioning this to someone, my first act of professional rebellion as a 21-year-old um, was to start a co-op of artists and architects. So my first act of rebellion was to bring people together. Um, so that's really where, uh, that's kind of the binder in my practice is like, and even, even with the reach outs, right? The outreach, it's just like people are important to me and kind of feeling like a part of something is very important to me to not be this kind of single voice is, is kind of um, imperative. Um, so, so yeah, it was good. I uh, started the co-op. We used to have these really fun parties. We, we rented a warehouse space in Seattle, Pioneer Square. We used to have these big parties and I would, um, I would do these large installations in the space using a bunch of just rubbish. And um, the collective would show work and we ended up, I mean, we had um, really um, fun events and then we ended up getting our first projects from, from those events. Um, like I said, so Pops headquarters and um, there's like a whole other slew of things that was just kind of storybook in terms of being able to start your own practice in your early 20s in architecture. Um, and then I went to, then I decided just to leave and go to Chile and that completely changed it. It was like going from a situation to where I guess the thing is like not wanting to be complacent, right? So then going from a situation that we had pretty good momentum and to say, you know what, um, I want to move to Chile <laughs> and go hang out with these guys, these people um, who've been doing this for 50 years. So I kind of want, I want to do a fast forward to 50 years from now and kind of see what I can learn from that and then bring back, bring that back to the collective. And um, so, yeah, so we were, we uh yeah so i had an amazing time in chile it was a really inspiring and i mean i did a worked on projects on previously uninhabited portions of chile that the navy had to (laughs) the navy had to kind of take us in ships and um unload us in zodiacs and so it was really kind of adventurous stuff i climbed a mountain that never been climbed before on the one of the coastal mountain ranges and um so that was good and then i came back started my firm that was going good and then um I used to compete against Olson Kundig a lot. And then one time I was, we were competing, uh, Tom and I were competing, Tom Kundig and I were competing for this collector's house, these collector's house. And we just started talking. It's just like, why are we competing? So then, um, so that was like 15 years ago now. So, um, yeah, so I've been at Olson Kundig for 15 years. Uh, one of the principals here and, um, I'm going to be moving to, um, New York in January. I'm going to be the principal that's going to be based in New York for we're opening a new office in New York. So super excited about that and kind of next steps associated with that. But along the way though, uh, my first paycheck, my first architecture paycheck, I used to buy a piece of artwork. So I've been collecting artwork for almost, almost 30 years. And um, through my co-ops and through my collecting, you know, it's just some of my best, best friends in the world are artists. You know, some are super famous, world famous, and others are, are not, but they're equally important in my growth and in um, the work I, I live with. So many questions. Okay. First question from that, and thank you for that. 
Yeah, it was kind of no, it was perfect. It was perfect. Intrigued by this idea of, I guess I would call it sort of future think and Mm -hmm. being able to project forward in time Mm -hmm. to gather that knowledge and then circle back for implementation. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about other instances maybe of, of doing that. And the reason I bring that up is because going into the pandemic, I was part of a conversation in which it was suggested to project just five years forward or three years forward or even one year forward. And right. to think to think about how from that position, you know, we one all would like to have acted in the moment. And I took a lot of inspiration from that. And so to kind of be allowed to remove myself from like the immediate challenges of the moment and think about how to be my best self from where I am right now, but from a place of future thought. And so I wonder if that was kind of part of that for you, if that's become a, a regular practice. I'll just, I'll just say this, that, um, you know, I don't think anyone who's, uh, I don't think anyone who kind of starts their own practice at 21 or starts a co-op at 21, their own practice at 23, and then goes off to Chile. I don't think that someone does these things, um, thinks that, you know, fast forward decades down the road that they're going to, that they're not going to be, uh, like have bosses, if you will, you know what I mean? (laughs) And so, and so in some ways, and I was talking to Alan Maskin, one of the partners here the other day, that um, in, in a lot of ways, like I, I absolutely, um, I never would have predicted um, the, the job I have right now, the job I have right now, I never would have predicted it, but it's absolutely the, the perfect job for me. And the beauty of working within a practice like Olson Kundiga, again, super well regarded, you know, uh, 200 plus person firm, 50 years old. We work on some of the most special projects around the world for amazing clients, right? But what's beautiful is that, um, you know, Kundig and Mask and Kirsten, all these, all these, uh, you know, all the partners here, they allow me to kind of um, just focus on my best self. And with the notion that perhaps me just focusing on the aspects of my practice, that I can do best, I can then bring back to the office and, 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 and that's uh, of benefit to the office. Kunigawa always says about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the ones with the head, with my head up. I got to have my head up. And um, as perhaps uh, we need a lot of people with their heads down, right. Just helping produce our work. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my job is, 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 and that's, I'm allowed, that's, that's the beauty of my position is just, I can just focus on trying to find the things that help us become better or to at least think about, you know, and introduce back and, um, and see where that takes us. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty privileged position. I appreciate it. For sure. Say more, if you will, about this idea of being better. What's the process of evaluating and, and how do you know? I can't, you know, I was thinking about, uh, there was something that, again on one of these rabbit holes the other day. Um, I started thinking about Jim Harrison. There's a, a book that Jim Harrison wrote a long time ago about the Vietnam war called the things they carried. And, um, it was a book I read in my twenties and, um, I had a lot of writer friends and I have a lot of writer friends and they had recommended that book. And it's basically, it's a series of short stories. And one of the short stories just is about the short story is completely about, the things that inf- infantrymen would carry in Vietnam. <laughs> and, um, and then I started thinking about that and I started thinking about like um, we as people, we as individuals, like what, what do we carry? You know, what, what do each of us carry that's particular, you know, because it's the same, the same decision-making particular decision-making that happens for someone that was an infantryman in Vietnam, what they decided to carry. Part of it was regulation. Part of it was completely personal you know, that, that was meaningful. And so I was just thinking about, so what, what, what do I carry? You know, what do I carry every day that, um, that equips me, you know, to kind of be ready, you know? So I think that uh, the good and bad part about what I'm, 
I guess what you're talking about getting better is that I already work with an environment where, where everything, <laughs> the everyday is extraordinary. And so then to try to keep kind of pushing what that could be, it's almost like doing like a, a classic, uh, maybe a cla- the classic black dress or something, right? That you try to not get, I mean, you can make the beautiful dress or you can make the beautiful suit or you can make the beautiful pants, but you kind of like, you don't want to feel like you've, you've done, you're done. You don't want to feel like, okay, <laughs> I can make the perfect dress, you know, that you just kind of keep thinking, okay, no, what, what else, what else is necessary? And what's beautiful about the world and the world changing is that um, resiliency is super important. You know, sustainability is super important. Equity, community, all of a sudden, then there are these whole other series of um, factors and considerations that need to kind of be embedded in one's practice. And so that's super helpful um, for sure. And then the other thing that's happening is that um, I like working in some of our remote locations. I either like working in the city are in like I have a we I'm working with Kundig um, on several projects in um, Mexico. I love working in Mexico because the architecture is just very elemental. It's almost like it's stri- it's like a it's so uh, essential. It's not about these elaborate building envelopes that you see throughout the rest of the world, which again they're they're fantastic because they they uh, facilitate some really high performing buildings um, <laughs> that don't leak. Uh, but in Mexico, the climate's so uh, beautiful and mild, relatively speaking, um, that you can have some really simple elemental buildings that are just built out of materials that are absolutely regionally sourced using labor that's absolutely um, uh, readily available in in the area. And so that's where I've been kind of just going, okay, let's go, let's go almost more primitive to kind of see what's left. And, um, like uh, as an example, you know, cantilevers, we, we love our cantilevers. You know, we have buildings that soar and float in the air um, all over the world. But what I, what I like about with Mexico is that um, that's not a language that's about the cantilever. It's a language about something coming right, right out of the earth. Um, so again, it's, it's like, I like uh, trying, to, trying to work within, within areas that create new parameters and limitations that again, gets back to that Jim Harrison thing to kind of understand what's the essence and the essential in the practice. So what do you carry? I carry, well, one, the one thing I carry is the great fortune of, um, of being uh, supported mm-hmm. just for, from day one. So that's the strength, right? So. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's the strength. So that's the thing where I go, okay. I don't have to play it safe. I have a, a safety net of people. And it's really about just trying to be as true to myself as possible, I guess you could say. And again, the true to self as, as my possible is like, you know, I'm working on this. Uh, or Olsen Kundig, we're working on this project in, um, with uh, sculptor Oscar Toisan in the um, high desert of Nevada. It's uh, called the One Cedar of Spring. My people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so and absolutely one of my people and um and you know it's called the cedar springs water school and it's a project that oscar and i've been working on for maybe five years now um yeah and, uh, conceptual stages at different points you know we worked at the at art basel um you know the installation at art basel then at the broad museum most recently oh and then the chicago architectural biennial we've been kind of iterating and testing and now we're you know the board's established, and we're we're going in uh, for real on the site, and um, and it's exciting because there's like uh, there's like this legacy of innovations by Steve Baer, this kind of pioneer in in passive solar design, and so you know we're bringing that and rad- radicalizing a little bit. So there'll be some radical sustainability um, on site, and we're and we're working with the local um, um, First Nations. Um, um, tribe, uh, the Goshutes, um, and um, their their leader is on the board, and they all they, they will be the stewards of the school. But it's a beautiful site, you know, where uh, water just comes out of the earth. The spring just mm-hmm. kind of comes comes out of the earth, and there's a little reservoir there with its own habitat, and um, and it just wants to be a school that kind of um, speaks to the you know the breath of the earth somehow, and um, and can kind of 
connect people with the earth and also be a, a learning um, tool um, and resource for the for the region. So that's the kind of thing like uh, what I carry is like I carry uh, support. Yeah, I carry really deep support. Yeah. Some years ago now, I was at a curatorial conference at the Walker Art Center and Anthony Huberman posed the question of what do you stand for? It became kind of a, like a lightning rod for me, really, you know, to be able to verbalize succinctly what it was that I stood for. And I think that's very similar to this idea of, you know, what do you carry? Mm -hmm. And it's, it actually has not wavered very much from what I figured out that day. And, um, I wonder if you think that what you carry in and what you stand for are the same or, or sympathetic, or if you would answer it differently and yeah, how it's maybe evolved for, for you over time. Um, I will say, say the, um, I'll just bring an example. Like uh, one of my first big kind of ground up projects was to do this this house um, for the founders of Pop Records on Orcas Island, which is this beautiful island um, near Seattle, and um, and that was a, a complete leap of faith. I mean, I was like 28 years old. Uh, my partner, business partner, was 29, and um, it was a it was a, a big vote of confidence from the clients. And again, it, it actually had some really really uh, forward leading um, um, leaning um, sustainability. Um, components to it actually completely in there and i remember talking to my my partner monty antrim who's based in new york i remember talking to him at the time and we're like we're just drawing we're each drawing at our own um desks and i just i remember just telling him i said monty i want this house to look like we designed it in our 20s that um this isn't about playing grown-up this is about us being the people that Bruce and Hannah trusted um, to do what we do. So you could say that um, maybe the specifics about what something looks like is different or what I would, what I would design now would be way different perhaps, you know, what I, but the sensibilities is is absolutely the same. I think that maybe um, it's a little bit more, uh, tailored in terms of i don't mean tailored as or, uh, in terms of like uh, uptight but i mean tailored in terms of reductive i'm definitely getting more reductive in terms of how i look at things and like what what the work the projects i work on with um um what they bring with them it's like really trying to shed and shed and shed and just try to get to just the i just i'm really interested in trying to make things look utterly easy now I don't want things to look hard. I wanted things to like to look like there's never a problem or care in the world. It's just mm-hmm. solved. And sometimes, you know, especially like with architecture, there's there's this tendency to kind of want to demonstrate how you're solving this difficult problem. <laughs> and uh, that's not where my practice has gone. But uh, but definitely the uh, the aesthetic, I would say the, the the person's the same in a lot of ways, but the but a lot more um, reductive than before. There's also something too, when, you know, when you have your own firm, the difference, and that was part of the learning curve for me too, is, and um, I appreciate everyone's patience here with me, but, you know, when you start your own firm at 21 and you start, you know, doing this collaborative stuff and you're doing things and, um, you know, you kind of, uh, my, my firm was actually named after Kurt Schwitter's um, um, collage. And it was a Kurt Schwitter's collage in which he used, um, it was a newsprint. It was a piece of a, it was a word out of a newspaper and it was unt, U-N-D. And it was all in lowercase. And, uh, and my, my partner Monty and I, we both loved this collage. And so we named, uh, we named our firm U-N-D. Um, but we loved it that, you know, unt um, in German means and. So we like the notion that, that our projects are us and all of these other collaborators and friends that we bring on to, to each particular project so it always became this additive thing and then we also love that that und lowercase um in german 
if you flip it upside down, becomes pun in English. And so, uh, and uh, yeah, so we used to have all these names like a universal nonlinear design, urban neural diagram, um, and such. We used to have all, yeah, so just a series of names. But it was important to be additive. That we were this, and so the tricky point was, and maybe this is part of the practice, is like that all of a sudden in a world in which you pick everyone around you, that all of a sudden you're working with people that, you know, it's just a gathering of people that come to work at this amazing firm for a variety of reasons. So you, you get uh, a lot of different trains of thought. And so then that was part of the exercise was trying to figure out like, well, what is, how, where does my train of thought work with and fit within this larger body? So, and maybe that's where the things then started to become more reductive. As you were speaking, I was thinking about a podcast that I did with Tom Sachs and mm. he was talking about cool. building his studio. And mm-hmm. I asked him, you know, what, what he looks for in the people who, who get to join the studio. And yeah. as you were talking about having really the incredible privilege to and getting to pick everyone around you i'd love to ask you that same question what are you looking for what's the criteria how do you choose well i will say this like um i'm not directly on the hiring team um at, with, with the group but uh some of my other principals are and we always talk about it and it's just like i think our job is to for why well, i think this may this is one way to, to speak to this i think um I think our maybe our most important job is to hire our hire our future bosses. Like mm. we need we need to hire the best. The people that scare us the most are the people that we need to hire. <laughs> you know, it's not about um, job protection. It's not about mm. um, having people that are easily kind of um, I don't want to say um, stewarded, but people that help challenge and question how we how we conduct our practice. And that have an astonishing amount of talent to help kind of pull it off. So that's that's the one. I think that, um, and I know Alan's spoken about this too, but, and we talked about this probably in the past too, Heidi, that um, I have had this, the, the re- like I remember the first time my co-op met, I, I, I you know, kind of been inviting people uh, separately one-on-one, but I just remember the first time my co-op met and I was 21 years old and I just looked around the room and I was completely frightened. I was, I was so frightened. It was just like the amount of talent that was around me. I just like, Oh my God, how do I, how do I even fit in here? And, um, and then the same thing happened to me when I picked up my life and ended up in Chile. And I was at one of the big meetings for the co-op, the first meeting for the co-op. It was the same thing going, Oh my gosh, these people are astonishing. I have no business, no business being here. And so, and, and, that is completely the type of um, environment that I yearn for. And that, that just completely nourishes me. So whether it's in a professional setting, so that's, that's when it comes to like that. I don't want, I don't even care. Um, Cause you know, I, you know, as principals, we kind of help kind of talk to teams about design, you know, the design and kind of vet design a little bit and kind of just make sure that, you know, that everyone's on the right path here. And um and I really, I don't even care what something looks like in some ways. It's just like, I just wanted to have like a complete, I don't want to say authentic, a complete deliberate kind of belief system and implementation system. And that's fine with me. You know, it's about knowing what to do, you know, and knowing what's the right thing to be doing. That's the, that's the attribute I really, I, I really, really value. Where do you think that comes from? And what role do you think confidence plays in that? That's the thing, though. You know, I think that, again, this is, you know, I'm speaking. I know that, you know, Brad, you know, Brad, I've known Brad forever. You know, Colapod, I know those were, you know, you've you've had them on the podcast in the past. And and the thing about us, it's like, you know, we're a firm that, you know, we have a lot, you know, there's not another firm in the world. It's a 200-person firm. Um, oh, maybe 210, 200, something like that. Uh, maybe 210 people. Um, over a 200-person firm, and then half of the work is residential. And there's no other firm like that in the world, like not even remotely like that. Um, so it's a very unusual practice to have a firm this size that does mostly um, residential. 
And it's not, I mean, granted, it's not normal residential in some, in a lot of instances, right? We do work with some of the great art collectors and in the world and some of the most beautiful sites around the world. Um, and then, um, but we, but as a result, you have a lot more projects and say, um, like Rim Coolhouse is a really old friend of mine, like RIMS, like OMA or something. We have a lot of projects because they're homes. They're smaller, right? And so mm-hmm. it really has to, then you have to think differently, right? And you have to think about in terms of like, and Kundig is so brilliant about this. You can't, um, and he always says, you, you know, I don't care who draws it. And it's not about, it's about how do you just steward, right? How do you steward and facilitate and not control? So, and that's really what's influenced a lot of how I look at um, architecture and everything now is like, how can you just help? How can you be helpful um, knowing that you can't control everything and that ultimately that's just not in the best interest of, of the firm or, or the individuals involved? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, uh, yeah, it's like, how do you just facilitate and give a, and equip people to be able to make the, make good decisions and make inventive decisions and give people some room to just do their thing. So can you talk office. about, yeah, it sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. You can, should come to the office. Sometime. You... <laughs> okay. I would like to do that. Actually. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, that I, I love architecture. And um, and in addition to studying art history, I also studied architectural history. And obviously, I'm committed to building oh, museums. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, 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 and special, you know, special ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. Pritzker Prize winning architect museums. So an extra kind of bonus on that. Um, can you describe a project or projects that you are most proud of and describe them in terms of what they look like and what you love about them. Can I just mention two real quick, maybe perhaps? Of course. Yeah. I'll just, just, just mention two and they're, they're, um, they're actually rather close to each other. And one, one's in, um, one's in Valle de Guadalupe um, in Mexico, just a you know couple of hours South of Tijuana and um, working on that with um, Tom Kundig. And I really, really, it's about, it's almost complete, like say maybe 90% complete. And uh, what I really love about that project is it took kind of this windswept flat kind of piece of land adjacent to a dry riverbed and some, some vineyards. And it really, uh, it really made it a completely different world. And only utilized resources that were absolutely immediately um, available. And so really, really reductive in terms of palette. It's like cinder block. It's a cinder. It's like a series of structures. Um, it's a house, a series of structures, all out of cinder block and wood and um, some steel, but not much. And, um, and it just, it really struck me. I was there maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago. And it actually shocked me how, how good it felt. I mean, how good it was. I mean, not again, not, that sounds wrong, but That's, um, you no, said, you said, it's good to say that. It's no, because it, it's like, about it was, yourself. but it was just yeah. interesting that to be there, you know, like the way that architecture books are, you know, the world works, right. That you, you get photos of things, right. And you get these kind of perfectly framed shots. And so then, you know, say you do a, a building and, say there's a book published or magazine articles and you see like five, six, seven photos, you know, of this structure. Whereas, you know, the architecture is not about the static image, right? It's, it's about movement and it's about, it's about panning your field of vision. So what I like is uh, that the project is going to photograph beautifully. But what I liked is when I went out there, I couldn't believe how charged all the spaces were between the buildings and around the buildings. Like all of a sudden there was just, they were all kind of in sync and creating this thing that, um, that really excited me. It really excited me. It's like a 200, it's like a 2,600 square foot house all in total, you know, four bedrooms. So it's modest. Um, and that's what really, that's what I really like. Uh, that's what I really um, take pride in is trying to kind of someone to work on these, pro- some of the projects uh, that maybe don't have the biggest budgets um but that can um, use that limitation to their advantage and then the other project i'll just mention is it's maybe three hours north it's a uh, in southern california 
and we were uh, hired uh, by uh, some clients uh, to build a pavilion to house this really big Anish Kapoor sculpture. And I worked. I started working with Anish maybe 12 years ago. First project with Anish was uh, 12 years ago, where I had clients purchase drawings of a sculpture that weren't fabricated yet, and then I kind of helped facilitate uh, how they were integrated into the architecture. And um, I learned a lot from that. But but anyway, so this building is really it's just really interesting because it's almost like saying uh, it's a large mirrored structure, and so it's almost like thinking you know like uh, the bean. Uh, like what would happen if you put the bean indoors, right? Because the bean, it's so dependent on and it's reflective. Of, on its reflectivity and bringing this, this scale of the city and the cosmic in, onto, the, onto the piece. And so what I was most proud of on that project was that we, we, we kind of tried to isolate it to say, you know what, um, if we're taking it inside, let's try to, instead of like trying to bring the world um, onto the piece, what about if we kind of we we create as quiet and reductive of as a ba- of a backdrop for the sculpture? So the sculpture really becomes about the individual confronting and interacting and engaging the sculpture directly. So it's completely, completely intimate, and that becomes the work. And so then we just started. That was the rule. It was just like, okay, how do we? It's all about experiencing the work. It's all about experiencing the work. It's not about the architecture. And that's where uh, that was kind of the, the the mandate all the way through. Because if you start doing it like in a greenhouse or something like that, you get all the mullions are going to start throwing lines on the piece, and it's going to get all busy. And it's like that's exactly what we didn't want to do. And so uh, the only thing that we added was that we added this retractable roof. We call it observatory. We we added this retractable roof. One, so that you could actually place the sculpture into the uh, structure, but we added this retractable mm-hmm. roof so um, so that it lets in um, the moonlight and mm-hmm. that it'll, it'll reflect the Milky Way. And um, so that's that's the one move. But uh, but we're really happy, and it's like all poured in place concrete, the same color as the earth. So it just tries to be really, really quiet. And so, yeah, so those are, and I guess the, the link with both of those is that they, they had limit, they had parameters, and then we just tried to, work within those parameters and that's why i like it i mean I, uh, again i have lots of projects i love but those are the, that's the kind of project i really really get most excited about these days that's great you've referenced art and artists a couple of times in the conversation and i think that's kind of how we connected to is is yeah. a shared commitment to artists and mm-hmm. how working with artists impacts our individual practices and architecture. And I wonder, I don't know, as a very general question, I guess, well, my standard question, you know, why does art matter? And what do you love about artists? Or why do you love artists, assuming that you do? (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, Can I take a little bit of a roundabout way path? Always. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, one of the greatest, one a really great gift in my life has been that since I was probably twelve, um, I've been a bird watcher, and um, bird watching has really, really um, influenced how I look at the world and what the world gives back to me. Hmm. And so at this stage, and again, I've lived in enough places, I've traveled in enough places to uh, to just see an astonishing amount of birds in all these different settings. Um, I remember being in the cloud forest of Ecuador for a week and a half and, you know, a hundred different types of hummingbirds, right? And so, like, really, and then even in South Texas, where I grew up, you know, 550 different types of birds. But um, what I like right now is that um, I can walk, uh, I can walk, <laughs> you know, I'd just be walking. It could be in a city, it could be in a forest. Um, or what have you. Um, but I like that I can walk and I can hear a bird. And then by the way it, it sounds, I can think, I can see it in my mind in terms of what how it looks. And then I can turn and I know where to look for it. You know, I know whether to look in, mm. you know, in underbrush or whether mm. to look into the mm. middle canopy or to the very tops. And it just adds a whole other layer of richness and understanding to the world. And so that the same tool that bird watching gives me, I think is also what art has given me. And I think about like, uh, like uh, I'll just, it's a little humble brag here. 
um, I, I, I actually I acquired last week. I acquired a piece of work by one of my favorite artists in the world, Yan Vu. Um, and I never thought one. I never thought I'd be able to afford a piece of work of his, but luckily he he produced one small enough that I could purchase um, or acquire. But um, but I love these artists that have really and like like Yan Vu. And even I was even at a dinner with Maicho Catalan, like in Basel you know, like last month or something like that. But I, and maybe that's not the most profound um, artist in terms of my development um, or like a Pierre Wee, but I love, um, I love artists that have throughout my life made me complete, that have completely challenged and made me reconsider what is art, you know? And that's now when Hmm. people ask me, when people ask me like the kind of artwork I like to collect, I like the common thread is I say, you know what? I like to collect artwork that's barely art, you know, but you just, you're, sometimes you're not even sure it's art. And that's the kind of, yeah. that's, and so, and I can only have gotten to that place by having been exposed and influenced and befriended so many artists over the decades um, that have, that have led me, you know, along that, that route. And so I think that all of a sudden, if you have to question, you know, something as, as like art, like, you know, um, then that allows you the ability and the facility to kind of assess and reassess everything. Yeah. It's pretty essential, isn't it? It is. It's, so it totally equips me to better understand the world. Absolutely. And so it's just rich. And so the beautiful thing about architecture is like, you know, uh, not the most lucrative profession in the world, even if you're doing some really lucrative projects. I mean, some really, you know, spe- special projects compared to other things in the world. But the funnest thing about it, being in architecture is like, especially if you live in the city, all you're, you're completely surrounded by the, the things you love and care about. You know, you can't walk into a room without scanning every detail, every material, every joint. It's just like, it's just, it's just, uh, it's rich, you know, it's so rich. And um, so again, that they kind of all work in unison, the, the art helping me understand better the architecture. So when you said uh, that you bought your first work of art, like with your first paycheck, basically, yeah, yeah. I had kind of a similar experience, and um, I'm curious what you bought and if you still have it. Oh yeah, no, I totally have it. I um, I bought this. It was kind of an embroidery piece. It was a, it's a, it's kind of in embro- it's it's a, I don't know what you'd really call it. It's a it's rose petals that have been stitched together to form this kind of um, surface, a sheet, if you will, a blanket, if you will. Um, and then within the rose petal has been, um, has been stitched in white, uh, this, uh, this weapon. And so it was this artist, Wendy Hansen, it's from a weapon series and um, it's in a specimen container. I still have it after all these years. I, I love it. And um yeah, so it's not like you know. I have, I definitely have purchases that are kind of more household names, if you will, bigger stars mm-hmm. that people. Oh, I, you know, like a, I one thing I love is like Sonia Kontrowski, a painter I really love. Um, you know, I purchased the first painting he ever sold as an artist. Um, wow! And, and he's it's so beautiful because he has this story about um, not having a studio at the time. And then, you know, painting it for weeks in his living room floor. And then his roommate saying, you got to stop painting this thing. You got to do this somewhere else. And then him having to go to this other place and this taking this canvas around all these different places that as they became available, till he could finally finish it. And so it's really great. And I, I, I'm excited about his, you know, what he's up to, certainly. And um, yeah, so much fun. I love that. What have I not asked you about that you hoped we would talk about today? I think maybe New York City. What's beautiful is when I moved to Seattle, again, pre-internet, I literally, I, ever since I was a kid, I always thought I'd live in New York. And I literally decided I was going to move to Seattle at the last second after school because um, I was born in McAllen, Texas. And I, my, the hospital where I was born is probably three miles from the Mexican border in the Rio Grande. And so I, uh, I remember uh, playing with these uh, puzzles of the United States when I was a kid. And then always wondering what that weird little shape of the peninsula in the Washington looked like. And so, I mean, literally impulsive move was I, I finished, wrapped up school and I thought, you know what, before I end up in New York, I want to know what that, 
what that peninsula looks like. So I'll go move to Seattle for a little bit, then I'll move to New York. And the flip side was that, you know, I moved, I showed up in Seattle and then, God, it was just, everything was just right here. Everything was right. Everything just clicked into place. And, and then it became a scenario. So it's like, why would I leave this to go start over completely um, in New York? And so it kind of been, it kind of became a very, uh, kind of put in the back burner in some ways. I mean, I've been going to New York regularly for decades, but, but in terms of moving there. So, so as our practice is kind of 50%, uh, like I said, 50% residential, and you can imagine what happened to the practice. Which is so the, interesting. Yeah. And you can imagine what happened to the pandemic with everyone wanting to kind of move to wilderness. So right. we, we've been right. very fortunate um, uh, in being very busy. And then the other thing that was happening was that, you know, we're doing um, some resorts, like Amon, we're doing three Amon resorts around the world right now. And um, wow. that, that kind of thing. So, one of the discussions was, you know what, uh, if, when we were 50-50, it was, it was interesting. But all of a sudden, if you start adding this hospitality into the mix, we're working a lot in wilderness, where some of the biggest challenges um, of the world today are happening in the cities. So perhaps this is the perfect moment for us to commit to the city, and not just to our own city, but we go to New York. And we go to New York, not because we have a, a big project there and we're going to set up an office, but we go to New York because we just want to participate and try to be helpful. And so that's what we're doing. And I'm really excited to not be moving as a kid to where I have to, you know, I have to move into a super small little kind of 300 square foot studio at least. And then I, you know, and then, you know, the whole, all the partners here are going to be uh, um, in New York on, on regular schedules. Um, but I'm super excited about that. And then so many great friends and opportunities there. So I'm really excited about doing this. I was thinking about it. It's like, I, I told myself, you know what? I got one, I got one big move left in me. This is my one big move. So I got one big move. So again, it's that thing that to just not being complacent, right? It's like the practice is so good. We're all so good here. This is a beautiful part of the world to live in beautiful office, all that. Right. But it's just like that maybe this could be the, uh, we can do a little scout work that helps uh, the overall our overall firm just get better and better, and then also provide an amenity to colleagues to be able to you know stay and work in New York and reconnect with culture and friends with our office there. I'm sure it's going to be great, and I like this idea that we're all just one decision away from a totally different life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a question to you because I, I was thinking about this recently like sometimes it doesn't even feel like the same life right like yeah. i almost feel i almost feel sometimes it's just one life after the other hmm. and so, and again sometimes people come and go and i i think we were talking last time like i've recently connected with some people that kind of i just lost track of in the world probably like maybe four or five and it's just kind of beautiful that way the way life works yeah you know? it's a long yeah. race long race it's an interesting idea to allow the possibility that it, it's not just one life with different chapters but that they're different lives they're different lives yeah mm -hmm. they're just different and it's kind of astonishing and beautiful i love things that are astonishing and i love things that are beautiful <laughs> same same Did same did you say you wanted to ask me a question? I was just going to ask if you shared or if you had a similar kind of experience or, or with regard to the, the one life after another versus feeling like it's just chapters sometimes. Yeah, I've been thinking, of, I've been thinking about that a lot without having that nomenclature framework. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's really why I love having conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Because people give voice or add language to things that I've been thinking about in, in yeah. ways that, you know, that I hadn't um, been able to yeah think about in the same way. And my boyfriend keeps saying, this is living yeah. as we're doing things. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is living and not in like a 20s kind of way of like, yeah, dude, like you know, <laughs> hang 10 or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. like awesome, you know, this is living and all of the grace and beauty of being alive. And yeah. 
what that means and how that feels. And I think that I probably can ascribe to that idea of having multiple lives and within that also knowing that some aspects of the different lives overlap too. Oh yeah. You know, so it's not just that like one ends and the next one starts. I mean, it does in certain ways, but then there are certain things that kind of connect through and, and as you were talking about like having lost touch with people and then having them come back in, I, I was thinking a, a little bit about that, about how sometimes the definition of place facilitates who's in your life. And when people have a lot of times recently, people have been asking me, like, if I miss Aspen and mm-hmm. or or what I miss about Aspen, if they're a little more nuanced. And yeah. what I miss is the type of nature there, because I, I love being outside and the type of nature is different than here. It's they're both amazing. And I, I miss my friendships. So it's not even like necessarily that I miss specific people because mm-hmm. they still exist, right? But mm-hmm. there's something and there's something about like the collection of friendships that I had while I lived there, which I don't have anymore because mm-hmm. I don't live there anymore. So And they're, and they're, and they're, they're particular collections too, right? Yes, I mean, yes. the, the sentiments yes. as a collective are so distinct. You know, yes. I, um, I, I mean, I flew back from New York uh, last Friday just to have dinner with some people here in Seattle. And um, it was yeah. completely worth it because I think I, 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 I've mentioned to you that I am um, a firm believer and an advocate of hopping on, hopping in the car or in a plane for, to, to have dinner um, and end up at a table. Um, end up at a table and it's kind of like what you're talking about that this is living but it's like i love uh, like being at a table where just things feel endless boundless and um, i remember i was one little antidote i uh that first commission that i got i was telling you the the house that um i wanted to look like i designed it in my 20s (laughs) when kundig yeah when when tom kundig first saw um because again that was like I get in books and magazines and all this, a lot of stuff. It was good. It was just like exactly like I wanted. But I remember when Kundig first saw that project with me, he looked at the photos of that project and he pointed at it and he said, if you worked here, this would be better. <laughs> and so, and so, and that kind of speaks to what I, I was talking about in terms of like even the bird watching or getting to know particular people that, you know, that house was as good as I could have possibly made it. And yet, here's someone saying it could have been so much better, (laughs) right? And so that's what that's, and that's where it's like I keep getting proven that what Mm. I think is my best is not the Mm -hmm. best. So then I got to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just reminds me that we have in common Doug Aiken and oh yeah, Doug. Doug. Doug basically said something so similar to me about the very first show that I curated. He was like, yeah, that's a good idea. What else do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, I need more than one idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's so Doug. But he said it in the most gracious way though. He says it in the most gracious way. The most gracious and curious and like it was, the most obvious question too, you know, and I yeah. had, of course, had to steal myself for the conversation. I was like, probably taking deep breaths. I was so nervous yeah. about even sharing my, my one idea. And I learned then the idea, the difference between like one idea and the first idea. Yeah. And I mean, gosh, just in terms of a comparison to what some of the artists I was mentioning earlier, you know, Doug's, Doug's taught me so much about, um, or the thing I really kind of admire about his practice is like, I mean, he's such a perfectionist, right? And um, yeah. the the demands he makes for himself and the production, the production levels and everything about what he does is so high. You know, this is not art that's barely art. This is art that's absolutely the highest art, right? So it's yeah. a whole different thing. But I, I just, I commend him because it's like, there's not one step of the path, the journey that isn't the same, um, doesn't, doesn't have the same priorities and um, insistence on um, being complete. So, yeah, 
a lot, a lot of admiration for Doug. Yeah, me too. I loved our conversation. Oh, good. I am looking forward to being seated with you at a table. Oh, I can't dinner. wait. I can't <laughs> wait. We're, I wonder where that's going to be. I wonder where it's going right? to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope it yeah. won't be too long from now either. Yeah, that sounds great. And um, let me know when you're in um, Seattle or, the, or New York. I promise Thank I will. You. Congratulations and good luck on the, the big museum. Thank you. Thank okay. you. I'm working on it every day. <laughs> okay. Take care. Okay, talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.